Did you know that the average human spends 92,000 hours at work during their lifetime? That's more than we spend eating, cleaning, driving, watching TV, or even surfing the internet. In fact, work is what we do most. It comes second only to sleeping. Welcome to 92,000 Hours, the podcast that believes in the integration of life and work. I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb. Before we begin, I wanted to tell you a quick story about why this podcast is so personal to me. I began practicing law at age 26 and learned many valuable lessons, including that I was deeply unhappy at work. Although I was on a path that looked like traditional success, I realized that I needed to quit my job in order to align myself with my passion and purpose. Now I am dedicated to making sure all of our 92,000 hours at work are spent well instead of simply spent. How do we construct a working world that values and accommodates our humanity? How do we construct a life that is not separate from, but fueled by, the purpose we find in our work? In this podcast, we will explore those questions and more. In each episode, I will speak to someone that demonstrates meaning, passion, and purpose in their work. Join me in discovering what happens when we bring our whole selves to our work, schools, and communities. Today, we are joined by Laurel Smiley. Laurel is an executive coach and an organizational culture expert. She is the managing partner of Four Letter Consulting and is based out of Los Angeles. She is a certified Dare to Lead consultant and was a partner at the Great Place to Work Institute. And today, we are talking about courage. All right, so I want to start with the the first question that I warned you about, which is our, which is how we start off every single episode, which is the uh, "Who are you really?" kind of an answer. So, if you remove all things work, school, I'm going to say research, uh, uh, college, work, like none of this stuff you do. If you take all that away, um. What are you most proud about yourself as a human being? Um, I have dealt with mental health issues since I was like a teenager. Um, So I've dealt with depression, anxiety, more anxiety than depression. And I think my commitment to my own mental health and my own personal growth remains something I'm consistently really proud of. I am so glad you said that. I think... I wonder if it's okay with you if I just bring that up, because I think that that is something that so many of us out there in the world struggle with and don't talk about. Yeah, absolutely. It is. I saw a statistic recently that said the average, it takes the average American 11 years to get mental health support after like 11 years of struggling. And it just broke my heart and I completely understood it. I fought it for, I fought it for a handful of years in high school and it, it makes perfect sense. And I also, after doing 20 plus years of work, I am, I am so infinitely grateful um, that that's been a part of my path too. I love that so much. I remember working with, um, in the mentoring program I had, we co-facilitated these sessions and it was just regular people like me co-facilitating. And uh, we had this man who worked with us who was, you know, 65 and during the conversations, he would say regularly, um, when I talked to my therapist, and eventually one of the students asked him, how long have you been seeing a therapist? Like, what do you see a therapist for? He said, you know, if you had this big scratch on your arm and that you kept scratching it and pretty soon it's a giant wound, why don't you go regularly take care of the scratch on your arm to help it help prevent it from becoming a giant wound? Right. And that's, he goes, we do that. We would do that for our arms. So we should do that for our mental capacities, for our emotions, for, and like, let's just have regular care for how we're doing. It's, it's been a really interesting thing. Cause I have that. I mean, I've probably spent at this point, I think I probably have spent, I've definitely spent the better part of 20 years, but I've probably spent close to like 17 years in and out in, in therapy. Um, and 
I, I wonder about that sometimes. Like, do I need this right now? Is this something I could not do? And the, the place I always come back to is like, yeah, you, I could. I mean, it's not like I wouldn't be functional in the world, but I think there's also, for me, there was an awareness a few years ago that I'm an external processor. And so it's so nice for me to have somebody to just talk things out to because so much gets cooked in that process that if I was thinking about it myself, I would overthink it probably to death. And my dear sweet friends who I adore and respect and are great supports, it's not their job to sit there and listen to me for an hour either. And so I really appreciate having that space. Um, but it is, it's the kind of thing that I also do intentionally share in my work more often than not, because I think it's really easy, especially when you do the kind of work that I do for people to think that you've got it all kind of figured out and you've, you've got your, you know, what you're doing in, in all of these kind of different categories and we're all human and we're all just trying to figure it out and do the best we can. And so anything I can do to, to almost like normalize and, and, remove from a pedestal that process and that journey. So it's not like, oh, one day you'll get to the mountaintop. It's like, no, all of us are on the trail every day. And some days we get up towards stuff and some days we slip and fall. And like, that's all the normal process. And so that feels really important to me to be a voice that I wished I had heard more of and also to just create more, more humanity in that space, I think. Will you talk a little bit, you mentioned that, um that based upon the work that you do, will you talk a little bit about what is, what is the work that you do? What's a day in the life? What, what do you do? Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny. So in the official terms, I'm an organization development consultant. Um, I have my master's in the field. I have my undergraduate degree in the field. I've been doing it for about 15 years. Um, that means nothing to the average person. And so what I talk about is I work with folks, um, around leadership and culture and really, really to me, as I continue in this space, it's really about leadership to me. Um, and, you know, I came up with this belief. I just, I still, I fundamentally believe that we make work harder and colder than it needs to be. And I have friends and colleagues who approach that challenge from a systemic level. And I am so appreciative of that. And I do some work in that space, but the places that bring me the most joy are actually working with individual leaders on how to really understand what their own leadership is about and who they are. It's really kind of a, a self-identity and a self-growth process, um, but it's through the lens of work. And so it feels a little bit lower stakes um, and those challenges, but so much of it to me really is about bringing out the, the human um, and bringing the human to work. Um, I'm so and thrilled so that you say that. I'm so thrilled. It's and so it ma matches up this podcast super well because- right? If we're going to spend more of our time at work than we do any anywhere else except sleeping, right. then don't we owe it to ourselves to like really make sure that that time is well spent? And and how can it be better spent than finding some purpose or meaning or joy? Exactly, exactly. That's that is dead on for me. Um, and I think you know we we have these ideas about how we're supposed to be at work and. You know, I've talked a lot in the last year about the fact that I think we're in this, this kind of pendulum swing where we went from, you know, these really like you show up, you do your job, you leave, you leave your problems at the door. I don't care about kind of your full humanity. It's not that I, I want anything bad to happen. It's just, it's not my job to care about those things. And as we have really decided as a, as a, a culture to bring more of the whole person to work, we struggle with that. We have no idea what that looks like. And so we're in a place where some folks bring too much of that to the work and some people still bring too little and some people, and we're having these really interesting conversations that are painful and uncomfortable, but I think critically important. So in terms of the day to day, um, at the moment, I would say I've got typically, you know, two to three hours of coaching leaders one-on-one. -on -one. And so those are folks um, that like yourself are heads of organizations. It can also be, um, you know, all the way down to director level. I absolutely love working with um, kind of mid-level leaders who are really wanting to understand their own leadership style and are so hungry for learning, especially at that point in their growth. 
Um, and then after that, I'll do some, typically some either like work with teams on kind of um, building stronger relationships, addressing conflict, addressing dysfunction. Um, I also do quite a bit of training around um, with the content of um, Brene Brown's um, Dare to Lead um, and really kind of using that as either the, the substance um, or a portion of, but really thinking about kind of what does courageous leadership really look like in the world. I love that you, like, I, I feel like you kind of just are trying to move me into the next question <laughs> that I might have. So well yeah. done. Um, <laughs> I, so you mentioned two really important things today, like the underlying subject that we're talking about is courage. And, and then you also brought up Brene Brown. So of course, I'm really interested in Brene Brown's way of defining courage and talking about courage about, and I wrote it to make sure it's like, to speak one's mind by telling all of your heart. Yeah. Like I it brings that. the heart, the core right into it. And, um, and I'm, I'm one, I'm really interested in what do you think of a definition like that about courage? I think, you know, it's funny. I actually was looking up the definition of courage myself. Cause I was like, I think, I mean, I live in this space, so I, I want to make sure I'm actually kind of using the right words. Um, and I think it's a really beautiful definition because I think, so much of what is scary these days has its roots in vulnerability. Um, it is a fear of, it's a, it's a fear of pain. I mean, it's a fear of shame. It's an avoidance tactic. And so to make choices that, to make any kind of courageous choice and the idea being you do something that you're scared of doing is, is courageous in and of itself, but the addition of explicitly calling out bringing in heart really deepens both the impact and frankly the fear that's associated with it because when you actually name that this is a heart exposure especially for people that don't live in that space and are are a little weary of that you raise the you raise the stakes in and, in and of itself i think and isn't that interesting that over time we've made like if courage originally had that definition and then we've made it so much more about like heroism and you know i'm gonna go conquer everything and i am infallible uh like that it seems the opposite in my opinion it totally is or you know i take it back it's not that it is the opposite to me but it is so the like tip of the iceberg it is like almost the like I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say this legitimately to a firefighter, like running into a burning building is courageous under any circumstance, but so, it, so is telling somebody you love them. Um, and so is sitting with your team that is really struggling with the realities of what the last year has been and actually saying to them, I hear you, I care about you, and I wish there was something I could say to fix it, and I can't. It's right? one of those like, things that when we talk about courage, I feel like in our society, we only talk about like those unusual, like, I don't know, archetypical types of courage. And I feel like it would be so much better if we celebrated the everyday courage that's happening all the time, all around us. And we just don't recognize it. And I think it goes to that. Like, we really want to be seen. I was, I, w I had to speak at something this week where they were filming me and they were asking me questions about why I like, why don't you love what you do? And I was talking about it and it was funny because I had this moment that choked me up where I was like, like right this minute, why do I love what I do right this minute all around the country? There are people who have full lives with so many responsibilities and so many like deadlines and hard things that they're dealing with. And they're choosing in the small moments that are quiet when like a, you know, a baby is on their lap to open up their computer and take a class to make themselves get to a better place or to help their, or to help create a better socioeconomic life for their children. Like that is what's yeah. more courageous. <laughs> Seriously. It gives me chills. And it is, it's the kind of thing, you know, it's funny. I wrote this down actually, as you were saying that, because one of the things I do with teams, um, especially when I do kind of group coaching or anything like that, um, that I absolutely love, one of my favorite kind of exercises or questions to walk them through is like, what is something from the last week that you're proud of? And it's so interesting because people lock up for so, initially when you ask that question, people are like, well, I didn't, 
I didn't close a huge deal or I didn't, you know, like do this huge momentous thing. And I always kind of break it down with them. Like, look, some days you're the thing that you're proud of is that you got up the next day and you kept going. Yeah. And it's the same thing. I actually like, I'm looking forward to doing this. I've got a group that I'm going to do this with on Thursday, but to ask them like, what was a small act of courage? Because I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think we set the bar unnecessarily high and we miss out on these moments of joy and these moments of victory that we don't give ourselves anywhere near enough credit for. We are so busy looking for the, the fallacy, the, the place where we failed, the phrase, place where we've been unsuccessful and we should be looking at that. And I think, you know, my graduate degree was in um, positive organization development and I didn't totally get it until I really went through the program how distinct that actually is and how much we live in a deficit-based world. But it actually, it, in a funny way, it does require courage to actually decide to not be driven by what you stink at and instead be driven by the things that are your passion, that you are good at, that you are, that there's a lot more there than we give credit to. I totally agree. I totally agree. And the it's the Ross school, right? I, yeah. I completely fangirl it too. When I started my PhD program and I didn't know about it, I learned about it. I was like, that would be a fun place to go to school. (laughs) I mean, their work is just amazing. I was at Case Western for mine, but it was inspired by a lot of the work that had come out of Ross and just the, the things that people are doing that I just, frankly, that my, I myself would have been skeptical of before I really kind of got into some of the work and was like, Oh no, this, this actually does demonstrate results. It's not to say that, you know, we can all just ignore our, our gaps and our weaknesses, but at the same time, we can definitely change how much focus we put on different things and get pretty different outcomes. When, um, so I have a question for you, which is like, why do you think that we have moved toward that heroism ideal of courage? Well, I'm, I'm not educated enough on the topic to say, to say kind of say so, but I think, I think first of all, as, as I, as a white woman progress in my anti-racist journey and really kind of work to educate myself, I think so much of that kind of stuff has to actually do with patriarchy and, and white supremacy. Um, I think they're really, it's so fundamentally baked in our culture. I think that's a really challenging piece. I think it's also, um, it's simple. It aligns with those things. It's a Mm -hmm. simple way to like check a box, like, oh, that's what heroism looks like. Great. I can do that. But I think we're realizing the limits. Um, And as the world gets more complicated on top of it, we're realizing that you can't just, you can't superhero your way out of things. You know, the other thought that comes to mind is a colleague that used to say this, and I just, I love it. She was like, if you reward firefighting, she was talking kind of organizationally and workload wise, but she was saying, if you reward firefighting, you encourage arson. And it just like, that's always really stuck with me that if all we're talking about is heroism in the big picture, what does that mean if you don't have opportunities to show up in that way? Does that mean that you're not as valuable? And so I think there's a, a necessity to kind of expand that definition, but yeah, I think patriarchy has a big role in in why we see it that way and really dangerous kind of sadly constrictive definitions of masculinity and all of these things and um, that that culturally we're reassessing, but all the pain that goes with that reassessment is is up. Yeah. That's really interesting and I, I when you talked about it. So I I have this story that um in my in my doctoral work, I want, said I wanted to study leader vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And what was fascinating to me is I, I, like, I talked to the students I was working with who were college age um, and 17 to 24 year, old, year olds. And they were, they just loved it. They're like, super cool. I love that you're going to talk about leader vulnerability. And then I talked to people my age and older and they were like, I don't understand what you mean. Like they couldn't, even my faculty members whose job was to study leadership question. They're like, I don't understand what you're talking about. Yeah. 
And I think that's what's been so amazing and so wonderful to me about Brene Brown is that her work, much of, I mean, not much of, but some of her work, she's not the only person in that space. It's not like she's the first person to have these thoughts, but somehow she has managed to like sync up with the cultural lexicon and, and actually be able to become a part of these things. I remember when she came out with Dare to Lead, my former business partner and I were laughing that like, we were so happy that she had finally put out a business book so we could finally not be giving our clients like what would be perceived as a self-help book. And instead we could be giving them a leadership book and then they'd be getting the same messages, but we weren't having to kind of bring to them like, this is it. But I, she has said this and I couldn't agree more. I think they're, I think senior leaders, we've friends, OD friends and I have joked about this. Like, I don't think you should be able to be a leader without a, a senior leader in particular, without a, at least a year, if not multiple of therapy, like your, your stuff is going to be your organization stuff. And if you don't want to look at that, then your organization isn't going to want to, you know, like the trickle down is, is there, but again, those things are scary for a lot of people. I'm also interested in what may have first come to your mind. So that's one like piece of what did you think? And then the second is, I'm really interested in, first of all, what did you think? Second, what does it mean to be courageous at work? And, and third, have you ever seen it? What did it look like? Yeah. Um, so I was, I was excited. I love talking about courage at work. I love talking about courage in general. I think it is, I think it's a big part of, I mean, it's one of my core values. It's one that I just am crystal clear. I have a whole belief system around um, in terms of what it looks like at work, I think there are a lot of examples, but I think I'm kind of going off the cuff here. So let's say 90%, but it's the vast, vast, vast majority are all about interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. And it's all about um, having hard conversations with people um, and really working to get on the same page, which is not the easiest thing to do. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. Can we just dive into that a little? Because I, I may be wrong, but I would imagine that a lot of people think, what, right? Like, so it's, so you work with leaders and you're talking to them about the courage it takes for them to have hard conversations with the people they lead. Yeah. And I yeah. would imagine that people might be like, what, what about like, what? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, the, it's so interesting to me. I think there's a there's a connect a connection point too with kind of imposter syndrome, but the number of I think one of the best kept secrets that makes me sad sometimes is that senior leaders are human. It's like a very funny thing to say, but I think there's this thought of like, oh, once you get to a certain level, you don't deal with insecurity anymore and it becomes easy to have hard conversations with people. And that is just like completely untrue. If my practice is any indication and my studies are any indication, it's just not true. And it's such a sad thing to me in terms of, I'm always so grateful to be able to provide people with opportunities where, where either younger, less mature kind of um, folks earlier in their career get the opportunity to hear that from a senior leader. I'm like, okay, great. We can start to kind of break this, but hard conversations, even people, I'm at the point where I question if any, if anybody is really comfortable with conflict. I actually think like the vast majority of people are conflict avoidant. Um, and many people are willing to have a conversation but I find that it's rare that they're actually willing to have the conversation. There, there actually is an unwillingness. I'll, I'll sit down with somebody, but for us to really talk about what's going on is exceptionally rare. And I think it's interesting that there are actually some folks who work to do that and are, are met with almost a like reaction of like, a reaction that leaves them feeling like, like the quote unquote weird one, like, when really they're the one actually bringing kind of really good communication to play, but it's not something that we're, we're all particularly accustomed to. Yeah. Does that have a lot to do with that whole idea of the, you know, of the meaning of courage of bringing your heart? Yeah. I think it's, it's so much around, I mean, so much of, of armoring, so much of avoiding vulnerability is shame avoidance, right? We don't want to wind up in a place where we can feel anything like that. 
I think so much of it is also ego and self-image. And if I have this conversation, you know, I had, I had somebody I was coaching a few years ago and he had a colleague, the relationship was terrible. It was a bad relationship. They were really struggling. And at least according to him, she would roll her eyes in, in meetings when he was talking. And I said to him, okay, like what, what about having a conversation with her and saying, Hey, when you do that, it makes me like what I start to make up is X, Y, and Z. Um, what's going on? Can we talk about it? Is that accurate? And he was like, well, what do I do if she says, yeah, that is accurate. I do think you're dumb. And that's why I'm rolling my eyes if I'm really going to be painfully honest. And I was like, well, then, you know, and then we can figure out what to do with that as opposed to playing this passive aggressive game that we're currently playing that serves nobody. Right. And so I think there's a lot of that of like, I don't want to know what the truth is. I'd rather, even if my story is painful, it's more, it's, it feels less painful to have that story than it does to actually deal with it. Um, I'm reading this book, My Grandmother's Hands, um, that is fantastic. And one of the things they talk about is the distinction between clean pain and dirty pain. Ooh, what is that? And I just, I love the idea. It's basically that like clean pain is this idea. It's the things that like, that build your capacity for growth. It's those moments when you're like, I know I should have this conversation. It's going to be so painful. That's clean pain. When you, if you actually choose to have that conversation, it's productive pain. Dirty pain is like, has its roots in, an, in avoidance. It's really like, I can't have that conversation. It's too painful. So I'm just not going to have it. And then I've got this dirty pain that I'm stuck with, as opposed to this clean pain that at least is moving me towards some kind of progress. I feel like that idea, like I love to have the, the, the shorthand language for it, that idea that really is that conflict avoidance thing that I think just is, it infiltrates the whole culture. It, it infiltrates how you wake up in the morning, um, like how you might even read how people are talking to you that may or may not be correct, but you're like, so because you avoided it, you're actually not avoiding it. It's more present than ever. You got it. It's such a fallacy that staying quiet will keep you safe. Um, and I think that's like one of the biggest heartfelt learnings for me in the last few years is like you are, so many of us grow up believing that like, if I stay in, in whatever my box is, everything will be okay. Um, and that is unfortunately just not how life works. And, you know, and so it is a really interesting thing to, to instead work to work through so much sometimes clean pain to get yourself to a place where you are able to really kind of stand in your own voice more than you have been. That's hard one, um, but well worth it. How risky do you think that is to actually like engage in the difficult conversations? I mean, what if you're, I get it if you're the leader and that's scary because it may affect the way that you lead. What if you're the employee who needs to tell your leader something. Oh yeah. I, you know, when I do this work in every context, but especially when I'm doing dare to lead with folks, one of the big things I repeat early and often is we're going to give you skills and encourage you to be more vulnerable and be more courageous in the world. Do not confuse that. That is not me saying be vulnerable in every situation, right? There's that idea that like empathy without boundaries is self-destruction. It's the same kind of thing. Like if you're like, now I'm going to be vulnerable in every situation, or I'm going to have every hard conversation, that's probably not the best guidance. And so for an employee considering having a conversation with their manager, I think there's a lot to think through and kind of, I'm a big advocate of having the conversation, but there's also nuance around how you have the conversation. Do you approach it as a question? Do you approach it as a suggestion? Do you approach it as a, a needs articulation? When do you talk to your manager about it? How do you frame the conversation? But I think um, somebody said this to me semi-recently and I loved it. They said, feedback is always something that should be in service of the relationship. Mm. Um, and I think about it in service of the relationship, the individual. And so if you can clarify to your manager why you're bringing this to them and it's to everybody's benefit, you're, you know, those things are going to go differently than you needing to have a conversation with your manager to make sure that they knew you were right about something, you're going to have a different outcome. <laughs> <laughs> we were just, I was talking to someone, um, recently for this podcast about communication at work and 
we had this whole conversation about some of our communication is actually often at work. Our communication should be to like, we're trying to make a, we're trying to move something forward. There's like a purpose to the communication often in our personal lives. The purpose to the communication is to be known and that we sometimes conflate the two at like at work. Sometimes we communicate to be known when what we need to communicate is to move something down. Like how do we, how, how would we know the difference? Because I, I, I also am, you know, I struggle with the, the deep desire that I have to know the people with whom I'm spending my time, which is at work. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a great question and even just a beautiful concept. I think to me, some of it is intuitive. Um, I think it's part of the, it's part of the reason I'm such an advocate of therapy and coaching is you've, you've got to have a lot of self-awareness to be able to really ask yourself those questions. Um, and to really understand I've, I've talked to the way I've articulated it to folks sometimes, especially both having been an employee that was a bit like this and certainly watched it a lot over the years of the person in the town hall, the big town hall meeting who goes to the microphone and they're going to let somebody know with their question, what they think is going on. And they're going to bring all of this emotion to the conversation, not inherently a bad thing. I'm not necessarily saying don't do that. But the way I've articulated it to folks is sometimes you have to decide what's more important to you, having your message actually be heard or being able to use your voice, right? Sometimes I just need to yell. And that is actually more important to me than if somebody actually hears what I'm yelling about in a weird way. But if I want somebody to hear what I'm saying, sometimes the delivery is not going to feel as in service of the relationship. <laughs> right. Like I have to think about that more. If it's about what are we trying to do? If we're trying to move things forward, I actually have to think about what's, I have to think about the other person. I have to think yeah. about how they're going to receive this. Where when I'm just needing to get something off of my chest, I'm thinking about that less. If this conversation has caught your attention and you want to join in on conversations like this, check out our website at connectioncollaborative.com. Welcome back. Today, we are speaking about courage with Laurel Smiley. Let's jump back in. thinking, I feel like the place of vulnerability in our society right now feels particularly acute. Like I just feel like we're all, everybody is super vulnerable and I'm interested in um, what courage might look like here. And especially when I was looking, thinking about that definition we have of, um, you know, the courage being able to speak your mind while telling your heart. And I feel like we may be speaking our minds out there, but I'm not sure our heart is there. And so yeah. what do you think about where we are in terms of courage in our society? I think we are, I think a few things. I think a lot of the reactions that we're seeing from people, a lot of like the entrenchment, I think is actually in my, in my most empathetic moments, I think is actually a vulnerability response. I think it's an armoring response. This has been an excruciatingly vulnerable year with COVID alone. It would have been an excruciatingly vulnerable year in a thousand different ways, but you bring in everything that has happened, the increased focus on, I don't want to pretend that these things started last year, but these increased, the increased focus on all of the racial dynamics in our country and the racial problems and issues and challenges and all of these things. I think, um, I think sometimes this is what's challenging is there's no blanket that we can kind of put over it, right? So sometimes being courageous is, is loudly and clearly telling somebody that their behavior is unacceptable. And sometimes courageousness is very gently reminding somebody of, you know, 
the impact of what they're saying. And sometimes courage is actually not naming those things and having a more gentle, exploratory, curiosity-driven conversation. And I think that's the challenge is there's no one clear way to be courageous right now. It requires a lot of kind of um, self-examination, situational examination, and really thinking about the work um, that needs to be done in whatever space it is. But I think it's a again, kind of to the conversation earlier about like the heroism of courage and that kind of look, I think sometimes we think it is being in the front line on a protest and that is absolutely sometimes, but sometimes something very soft and very counter to that is actually a courageous act as well. I think, gosh, it, like when you're talking about it, it feels so hard. I remember last summer I was talking with my daughter and she you know, I said something to her along the lines of how proud I was that if that I could see such activism and such inspiration in young people. Mm-hmm. And she immediately said to me, but you see that can that as a young person, I'm really frustrated with you saying that because we are out there marching and being loud but your, your generation is in positions of power where you could actually do something right now. So you should not get to look at us and say, look at you guys leading the charge. That's a way for you to shrug off your own responsibility here. Yeah, dead on. I mean, I completely agree with her. I've had a, a lot of very interesting conversations with my, um, with my parents in particular. Um, but one of the things that we were talking about a few weeks ago is my mom was talking about kind of the complexity of the world right now. And, you know, I said to her, I was like, on the one hand, you're totally right. It is a deeply complicated world. And on the other hand, that's garbage. Like we have, we've hidden behind complexity for a long time about things that we should have actually been a lot more courageous about just taking on the nose and saying, no, that's not what we're going to do. We're not going to both sides this. We're not going to kind of soften this, we're going to actually all actually have a hard conversation and really show up for this. And it, it also goes to that place of, um, I read this article recently and I'm a little embarrassed because I feel like I'm really late to the party of understanding this. And so, you know, people probably already know this long ago, but it's, it's newer for me, the, the idea of it. And I, there's this guy that I read his uh, website, it's called Nonprofit AF. Mm-hmm. And I think he's great. And he was talking about, it was, he is um, of um, Asian ethnicity. I'm not sure exactly. And, but he was talking about the shootings that had happened in Atlanta recently and how done he is with people looking to him and to other individuals um, of Asian descent to say, gosh, you, you know, like your activism is important. You need to be active. And, and, you know, what are you guys doing about it? And him saying, this has been the way that we in America oppress people forever is by putting the onus on the oppressed to do something. And he used, and he said, and when they say like, well, don't you have examples of what we can do? He used this like simple tweet that this woman had done about uh, paying women. Uh-huh. And he had said like, here you go, here's an example. And it was like a woman saying me or some man saying to this woman, you know, gosh, we need to do something about gender inequality and pay. And she's, and the woman saying, yeah, we should pay, like pay women more. And he said, yes, but I mean, what are we going to do about it? Her pay women more, but what can I do? And she said, pay the women you work with more. Yeah. Like the answer is right there. It's super simple. <laughs> And I think that's it is so is, I think it's been one of the things that has really leaves me thinking and reflecting and having an answer and then circling back and realizing I don't have an answer. And all of this is, is so much of this is all about culture. You know, that's the thing is I'm so grateful to have kind of my background and my training in, in that space to really be able to say like, these are, this is why it's hard. This is why it's hard to legislate to these things is because the legislation matters profoundly. Don't get me wrong, but in the same way that in an organization, you know, you can create policies and practices all day long and those are important, but if you're not culturally behind them, if you're not culturally reinforcing them, supporting them, modeling them, whatever it is, 
then you've got some nice words on a page. Um, but I think it is, you know, when I look at organizations and I think that that tweet is a perfect example because, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if that man, you know, had a daughter and wants his daughter to be able to be six, all these great things, but it's those kind of micro moments that are so that we worry in all of our individual ways about losing social capital and losing the power that we do have. And I think those are the places where it's like, I think for me, it's really been a very interesting reflection of like, let's get real. Like you are a, you are a very fortunate, very privileged white woman. And I have worked and, you know, I've worked hard for my accomplishments and yada, yada, but I would not, they, they have come a billion times easier than they would have because of many facets of my background to pretend that we don't lose something, I think is also disingenuous. I think there really has to be a lot of reflection from those in power in whatever the context is or the situation to say, really, 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 what are you willing to lose? What are you willing to give up? If we talk yeah. about like returning land to indigenous folks, are you really willing to give up your piece of property? Like, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to potentially lose your job being the person who says this is not acceptable? And, and that's a lot of the, that's a lot of the courage that we actually need to be looking at and talking about. I think that's right. And I think that's the, I, I remember when um, I had quit, I had stopped being a lawyer and I had basically not, like I'd been doing well, then I had nothing. <laughs> and um, there was great freedom in that because I was able, because I didn't have anything left really to lose. Yeah. I felt like I could speak my mind. I have this story that I would tell my students. I went to a, speaker, I saw this keynote speaker that nothing has stayed with me longer than this guy. He was a digital ethnographer or something like that. But then before that, he was, he, I mean, he was basically a cultural anthropologist and he had been in Papua New Guinea for a long time by himself studying the folks there. And he told this story that I think is like the best. And I told my students all the time, like, here's what empathy looks like. And it's really like, but it's the story he told of he's there. Um, and, and it was their culture, how different it was from our culture. He's there. And, and he said he was, um, he missed home. So he needed to get away from everybody. He hiked up to the top of this plateau so that he could see the village he was staying in. And he said, I went up there and wept because I was just, you know, bereft. I missed home. I, wondered about the things I was, that was happening. And he said, and then as I'm sitting up there, this man crying, I see the men of the, of this village who had been out, um, doing something together, walking up the ridge toward him. And so he's like, ah, I got to get my shit together, wiping his face. And as they get to him, he can see as they're walking toward him, that they're weeping. These like big, men who had been like hunting or something together weeping and they got to him and and he said what what you know in he could speak to them and he said what what is what are you doing and they said we saw you up here and we saw your sadness so we came to sit with you in your sadness oh just i mean so beautiful and like so beautiful they didn't want to they yeah. had no questions. They, and they, like, they're just going to, they found their own thing that they could weep about because yeah, they could feel that too. That's empathy. We all know what sadness feels like. Right. And that's the thing. It is, it is a courageous choice to touch into that sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes you're like, oh, I don't want to feel this feeling. I don't want to feel this feeling. And that is such a, such a common experience. Um, and the avoidance usually makes it worse anyway. And I mean, not that I don't still work to avoid my emotions as much as the next girl, but you know, I mean, I at least know that when I get into those moments, I'm like, you know, it's going to be, it's that difference between clean pain and dirty pain, right? You can feel the clean pain of actually feeling the emotion or the dirty pain of trying to avoid that emotion and numb and get angry at somebody else and do all of these avoidant things. But sometimes it is hugely courageous to actually just touch into that and deal with it. So I also wanted to ask you about um, just this moment. Um, you work with leaders and you talked about this a little bit. So is there any, like, talk to me a little bit about leadership and courage and COVID and pandemics. Like what, what has, what, I just don't even know the question to ask you, but I feel like courage in this time is something that 
is hard to deal with. <laughs> so hard. I think it's, you know, part of what I see is first empathy is kind of the order of the day. Um, right. Like you can't, you can't, if you have an employee with three kids under 10 and a partner and they're in a two bedroom apartment and they're losing their mind. Cause all of those things are true as a leader, you are, you can't fix it. And you also are potentially in the position where you are needing things from that person, you know? And so you are having to, as a leader, first be courageous in just trying to figure out and actually show up for this because the, I would argue the non-courageous response is to just pretend like everything is normal and like, it's fine. You know, like when I hear people who are like, well, we've gotten an opportunity to see what working from home would be like. I'm like, no, you haven't. That is, there's, you haven't at all. People have been home in the middle of a pandemic. Like these are not normal working conditions. So I think there's just the like brave new world element of it that requires courage. I think there's the definitive need for empathy. And I think, you know, in that space of the unknown, you have to try new things. And I think that's been really interesting. It's been interesting to watch leaders um, either decide to run their teams the same way that they've always run them and not change anything, um, or to really embrace a totally different way of working or something in between. Um, but I think, I think all of those pieces have been front and center on the COVID front. I think the, the burnout that folks are experiencing, I think we're going to see a lot of the consequences. I think we're going to see a lot of the, yeah, maybe consequences is the right word of what the impact of how well we did as leaders was felt. Um, and kind of what I mean by that is I'm starting to see more and more morale issues kind of pop up. And I think we've done a good job of kind of white knuckling our way through the worst of it. Um, but it's almost like we've now passed through the storm and or hopefully, fingers crossed, passed through much of the storm. And as we enter kind of the like letdown and the kind of like still processing, it's almost the like you know, you almost get like, you almost get into a car accident and it, you miss it and it's all okay. But your hands, at least for me, like my hands are just shaking like a leaf, right? I'm still processing what's going on. I've gotten through the initial incident, but then I'm processing. I think we're in some of that processing space. Oh. And I think, um, we're going to see a lot of stuff come up at work, think, in our families, in our schools, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, all over the place. And I think, leaders are going to have to courageously own that there were places that they misstepped. There are going to be a lot of conversations all up and down levels of leadership. I think, you know, sure, middle managers are the ones that are going to hear it most from kind of frontline, but it's, it's going to be all up and down organizations. And then you add on, I mean, you know, that's just the COVID piece, but the world has been so complicated in so many ways in the last year. There have been so many other things that have demanded courage that there's almost a part of me that feels like there's just going to be a lot of like surrender that's needed. A lot of this, like I did the, a lot of surrender and forgiveness, a lot of like, I did the very best I could. And I, I, I understand I screwed that up and I'm going to do it differently. And I really appreciate you telling me, and I hope we can all move forward together to kind of a new space. I think that would be really important. Even yesterday, I was talking to someone who was acting as though like she felt bad that she hadn't done as much during the COVID time. And right. I'm like, you, you, your kids are alive. <laughs> yeah. People, I saw somebody on social media that was talking about like, you know, you're mad at your body because you gained 10 pounds in the middle of a global pandemic. Like your body had other priorities. Like your body got you through this, you know, like, let's be happy about that. And I think, even that is just such an interesting idea of like, what if we actually love things for what they could do rather than, you know. It's that whole abundant things. stuff. Yeah. I love that you bring the, the, the positive and the abundant to what we do. Um, and I want to be, I want to be cognizant of your time and I appreciate how much time you've given to me. I, I, one of the things I, I usually t talk about, like who is a mentor that you've had. So yeah. I'm interested if you want to, 
but I have two questions for you. Yeah. One of them I just can't help, and I know my listeners will care deeply about. <laughs> so um, I just can't let it let it go. Which yeah. would be like, what was it like to actually have Dare to Lead training from Brene Brown? I know the students of mine that listen to this podcast will be like, what? Yeah, like yeah. So what was that like? It was, it was so cool. I really have to say, and it's funny because I am, I have a bit of the heart of the skeptic, which is funny for all of this positivity that I'm talking about. Cause I have that too, but you know, so she's, she's coming in. It wasn't a, it was not a cheap training. It wasn't like a, Oh, you just plunk down a few hundred dollars and you go. And you know, so we had invested a, a chunk of money and you know, the room, it was about a, she had done, uh, four trainings in 2019. You had to apply, you had to be kind of in the field, blah, blah, blah. So get in, I'm accepted into the June cohort. My um, business partner is accepted into the September cohort. And um, there's about hundred, 125 people per cohort. And I'm sitting there like, she's about to come in and the room is unsurprisingly dominantly women. There are a handful of men, international group, really interesting. And you know, there's some women that are over there kind of fangirling, like, oh my God, she's about to come in. And I'm sitting there kind of like arms crossed, leaning back, like, all right, let's see what you got. Let's Proof see to me is- that you're all that. Yeah. Right? Like, I love you. I fangirl you, but also like really. Yeah. And it was, I mean, she was amazing. She, she is as charismatic as you think she will be. Um, it is she is also profoundly authentic. And I really appreciated that. She treated us also like we were colleagues, nice. which I think was a really special thing. Um, and, and actually set a boundary with the group in, a, in that particular way. She talked about like, you all understand the challenges of being a facilitator. So I'm just going to be real with you guys. These take energy from me. I love doing them, but I'm an introvert and this requires a lot of energy for me and I need to keep some of my energy for my family. And so I'm going to ask that you guys don't come and approach me or try and take pictures of me like on a break. And just the way that she set that boundary was really interesting to me. And as somebody who has been a student in my kind of personal life, as well as professional around boundaries and is a recovering people pleaser and kind of all of that. I think it was really important for me to see modeled what it is to set a boundary clearly and still kindly. Um, And also I actually loved the fact that she's warm, but she's not like super warm and fuzzy. And I actually really appreciated that. It was like a nice reminder that like this work, this work gets kind of positioned as very soft and is that really important and that's a you know all these feelings and stuff and it was just a nice reminder that like you can talk about these things with somebody these can be very real they don't have to be everybody only has nice conversations in fact the heart of the kindest and strongest relationships are the ability to have conflict and have to be courageous and have hard conversations and trust that there will still be support there. That's awesome. I'm glad to hear it. Um, It's a sad thing that you don't get to have your picture taken with her at the thing, but it makes sense for her. Right. She did it. She will do one group picture with everybody. And it was, it was really interesting, but I was like, super fair. Right? I think it's the best way. I had this friend of mine who, with priorities, I kept trying to talk him into volunteering for something. And mm-hmm. he would be, and he was like, look, I only have time in my life to do three things well, work, family, and one volunteer thing. This year, I already committed to the volunteer thing. So ask me next year. Right. And I was like, that's fair. Like, I don't have an argument for you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. And that's the stuff is that like clarity is, I just feel like we somehow got the message that being clear was mean. Yeah. Sometimes I just am like super grateful, like, oh, great. Now I don't have questions. I won't, we don't have to have this conversation 18 times. Yeah. And I don't even have to worry that it has anything to do with me. We make it about like, this has nothing to do with me. This is about you. Seriously. Seriously. Awesome. So is there any, before we go, just, is there any, um, because it, uh, I care so deeply about mentors and the, and the way that mentors show up for us in our lives, sometimes 
not realizing they're a mentor, sometimes clearly knowing. Is there any mentor that you've had in your life that you would like to honor by telling a little bit of their story here? Oh, oh I love that question. You know, the person that comes to mind, um, who I don't know if she would define herself as a mentor of mine, but it definitely was, I had two kind of at the same period of time. Um, I was a great place to work from the time I was 24 to 32, 33. Um, so I really, I grew up in that organization in a myriad of different ways. And I got to a point where um, I was the, I was the longest tenured person on the team and also the youngest by about 10 years. And it was this really odd intersection of like, I don't know what to do with this. But all of these like brilliant, lovely colleagues who had more experience than me and were still looking to me for my thoughts on something, or I would have a contribution. And, and Tony, um, one of my mentors really was consistent in reminding me that I had things to actually contribute and that my age had absolutely nothing to do with, and even the, the kind of experience I had had, um, because it had been only a great place to work at the time, I was a bit like, oh, is this as valuable as it could be? And blah, 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 and a lot of stories about it. And he really, I think part of his job, part of his, his quote unquote job as a mentor for me was to really remind me of my own contributions and my own gifts, um, despite the fact that I was, I think at the time I was 20 years younger than him. And he had so many, I mean, he was, he is such a brilliant and gifted consultant. So I think that was a huge mentorship moment for me. And the other, I can't even think of something specific, but was my boss, Sarah, at that time. She just, what I experienced from her, what she really modeled and helped me learn about was, again, how to be, how to be caring without the traditional look of it. It wasn't like, are you doing okay? I remember started crying in a review with her and I was mortified and she wasn't like, are you okay? Can I give you a hug? Do you want to talk about anything? She like got up and left the room and went and got me some tissues and allowed me to collect myself and came back in and was like, talk to me about what's going on. And it just, there was a really different experience of empathy there that was a huge lesson for me. And Sarah always served as kind of that touch point for me. Oh, I love that. She didn't actually try to cover up what was happening. She was just like, okay, when you're ready, like, I'm here to listen when you're ready to talk about it. Exactly. I lost a friend uh, in November and she had been sick for about seven years. And I was with Sarah, I was with a team when I got, um, or in, almost immediately after I got the news that she was sick. And, you know, everybody else is doing their like, she's going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. And, you know, in that context, in that moment, it was not an, an inappropriate thing to say. But Sarah conversely was like, you know, she may not make it, but you guys are going to live out whatever time she's got in the best possible way that honors her. And it's so funny when I tell that story, because some people's reactions are like, that's a terrible thing to say. And mine was like exactly what you said. Like I just appreciated the realness of it and it wasn't covering up and diminishing. It just was like, that stinks. And you have the capability to meet this moment and to get through it. Yeah. Yeah. It's that whole resilience stuff. Like we can all, we can get through it. We can do it. We can do hard things. Yeah. Well, I deeply, deeply appreciate that you gave me this time. I'm so oh, grateful. Yeah. I'm I know. So, so like, happy. I just think you're the most brilliant and the most um, thoughtful. Uh, and, you know, and I, I'm just deeply grateful that you would do this and that I could hopefully share with a few hundred more people at least. Um, what you, what you have to say and what I get the honor of hearing regularly. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. I so appreciate you asking and anytime. Thank you so much to Laurel Smiley for her own courage in sharing her knowledge and her vulnerability and honesty with us. You can learn more about her by following her on LinkedIn and through her website at fourletterconsulting.com. 
Next week, we will have a particularly special episode. We've invited several of our past guests to join us to talk about their experience, and our focus will be self-awareness. As always, thank you for listening to 92,000 Hours. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. We really appreciate your support. If you're interested in integrating the personal and professional through authentic conversation, just like you heard on our episode today, please check out our work at Connection Collaborative. You can find us at connectioncollaborative.com or send me an email at annalisa at connectioncollaborative.com. Thank you and see you next week on 92,000 Hours. Ninety two thousand hours is made possible by Connection Collaborative. This episode was produced and edited by Brianna Stegel. Lexi Banks is our marketing director, and I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb.